Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, Beatles fans. Welcome back to another episode of I Saw the Beatles. Uh, after several, you know, uh, technical difficulties this morning, um, finally, I'm happy to report that I have got author Janice Mitchell on the phone, and I cannot wait to talk to her. I read her books in five hours yesterday. It was that good. It is, you will read it cover to cover and not want to put it down. You just you just have to read this book. Hi, Jan. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you, Jen? I'm good, too. Um, as I said, I, I read your book in one sitting. Um, no problems. I mean, didn't want to put it down. I don't I don't even think I – actually, I don't even know that I got up for a meal. I think I went and got some pretzels and sat down and continued reading and something like that. was starving when, you know, by the time I got done. Uh, it is It is really a great book. Um, Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, for those who are listening, her book is called My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland. This story is 50 years old, right? Right. So what took you, I mean, it's such a thrilling story. What took you so long to write it? Well, that's a great question. And the reason being is because at the time of my adventure, when I was 16, and then uh, was finally um, returned back to Cleveland, I was instructed in no uncertain terms by relatives, the court, uh, my school, and my church to just go on with my life and never speak of it again. So that's what I did. So I just kept it as my own true secret for all these years. But then... Um, Can I maybe... uh, Why was it that you think they all said just keep it under wraps? I mean, I understand why the family did that um, from reading the book. You explain, you know, why. But all these other people, why are they... Why do you think they wanted you to keep it a secret and never tell it? Yeah, well, because it just caused too much of a sensational stir you know, here, and they didn't want me to talk about it at school. I was to- I was instructed about that, don't mention it. And also, mm-hmm. to, if any kids at school wa- wanted to talk to me about it, I was to take their names down and give them to the principal, which, of course, I was never going to do that. But they mm-hmm. just wanted everything to just go away, and we just don't discuss it anymore. You did it. It's over. Let's move on. It was a huge embarrassment, you know, to... To, to Cleveland Heights, <laughs> Ohio. I guess, I guess because you slipped through their fingers, and maybe that's why. Because yeah. I, I can't imagine nowadays every the. I mean, you would have been on every talk show in the country. Actually, every place well, in, in the all, world. You know, well, it couldn't happen today. But back then, of course, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. You know, people just lived their lives. You know, privately and. So there was no way really to communicate other than if you called somebody and you didn't get a busy signal and they answered the phone. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, for those those who are listening, um, so 
I'm going to let you you explain this explain what what this you know exactly what happened, but I must say that the innocence and naivety of the story is what just amazed me was the fact that what Janice is about to tell you and the way she tells the story is just so matter of fact with you know this was just what she was going to do now tell the story of how this came about i was surprised at how long the how how far in advance it was planned yes yeah. well my home life was uh was very troubling and grim and my my great uncle who had been the light in my life he had died in earlier that year and it was the same and then following that um JFK was assassinated and uh there was really no no sunshine in my life whatsoever until I happened to be doing my homework and listening to the radio because we had big transistor radios back then sitting at the kitchen table listening to the usual kind of songs that were on including the number one hit in at that time was the singing nun uh, singing a tune called Dominique on her acoustic guitar. So that just kind of gives you an idea of where we were at with pop music. And then I had heard, some of us had heard that there was a new disc jockey named Jerry G who was coming from Chicago. So I was hopeful that he was going to bring some new records. Because in those days, uh, you could, you know, the disc jockeys decided what was going to be a popular tune and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. So you could actually mm-hmm. call the disc jockeys in, while they were in the studio and ask them to play something. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I turn the station to, and Jerry G is on, our new disc jockey. And he said that he's going to be playing a new song. And I couldn't hear what he said. I thought he said the Beagles. And it turned out mm-hmm. to be... I want to hold your hand. And as soon as I heard that, it was unlike anything I had ever heard before. I mean, the chords and the um, the harmony and the energy was just electric. And it just electrified me. And I just literally jumped up and ran, grab, tried to grab the wall phone receiver to call the station to ask him to play it again. And uh, the phone was busy, so I figured, like, all the kids in Cleveland must be calling the station to ask for the same thing. Mm-hmm. So then my my best Beatle buddy and I, we became best Beatle buddies because we didn't really know about the Beatles yet. But as mm-hmm. soon as we heard them, you know, all the kids were talking about it, and we had to have everything that we could possibly find. And don't forget, back in those days, there was no way to actually see the Beatles anywhere it was all in that little teen magazines and uh, bubblegum cards and mm-hmm. um, things like that. So anticipating seeing the Beatles live for the first time, which was coming up in February on the Ed Sullivan Show, that was like a huge, huge thing. So as we're listening to Beatle records in my friend's bedroom and reading teen magazines, I just happened to read because I had to know every single thing about every single Beatle. Mm-hmm. I read that they could hang out in clubs in Soho in London, and everything was fine. So suddenly it hit me, we should go to Soho. We should just get there to have new lives, you know, where our lives could be happy, like where the Beatle music came from. We mm-hmm. started calling it Beatleland. Mm-hmm. So, so then the, pl- the plan was on, you know, to try and figure out how to get over to London 
and get passports and everything. We did it all the way that you should do it. We didn't do anything illegal whatsoever. What right. Made it well, possible? let me let, just for one second. Let, let's back up. We need to explain that you know, um, and you can elaborate on this. Is that you were no longer living at home with your parents at the time. You were um, from a broken home, and you right. had and you had been given, and your great aunt had been given custody of you. Is that the way it was, or you chose That's to live? That's the way with it was. No, she had legal custody of me after my. After my parents, um, when I was seven, my mother just left the home, and uh, my father decided to just turn all of us kids over to the state of Ohio. And I just wound up having to live with my great aunt and her husband, my Uncle Max, and my great aunt's daughter. So I was living there, and everything was fine until my Uncle Max died suddenly. So that was kind of right. the end for me. <laughs> right, and this wasn't this wasn't necess- this wasn't necessarily a great home life either. Living there, no, it was no. Um, just... You had to you had to work and earn money for everything you needed, right down to uh, new eyeglasses and clothes, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, that's right. I did. They were they were pretty much supplying the roof over your head and the food food on your table. Yes, yeah. yeah. and. But your uncle Mac was was kind and you know he was he was the sunshine of my life. Okay, so he passed he passed away. So you know you're yeah. So you're you and your beetle friend are just like you know well we're just going to move on. So continue on. I just wanted to you know make sure we <laughs> people understood mm-hmm. exactly why you're just like yeah we'll just get up and move. We're 16 years old, you know. Well, we didn't even think about how old we were. We were just thinking, let's do it. So um, I proposed the idea to my friend, you know, let's let's leave home. And she said, oh, yeah, let's go to New York. I said, New York? you got to be kidding me. No, we're going to England where the Beatles are. You know, let's live in the Beatle world, the world that makes mm-hmm. us happy. So it wouldn't have been possible except my friend said, well, I have a college fund, but I never want to go to college. So we can let's use that. So that was it, you know. That was just, that's what was going to make it possible, was her college fund. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so over the summer, uh, we applied for our passports and we, you know, obtained them in early August, mm-hmm. and uh, we went to the TWA ticket office in downtown Cleveland and bought two one-way tickets to London, which I learned much later on. They they were not supposed to sell overseas tickets to minors, but they did. Um, right. So and, then we, but in your book, you, you state that she says, oh, your parents are sending you on a vacation. So in her, you know, give the give the ticket lady some credit here. She she just believed it was, you know, your parents sending you. It wasn't like you were just you were running away. I mean, you know, what well, 16 year old no, would I, be standing at a ticket counter asking for one way tickets to Right. Her eyes. I, so, I, I'm trying to say in her defense. Well, that's that's okay. I mean, uh, we just said I just had always I had learned my three rules of survival as a youngster. You know, mm-hmm. just a, only ask a question, only answer a question with one word if somebody asks you a question. Other than that, keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. So when she said that, I just said yes and just move on. Keep smiling mm-hmm. and move on. So. Um, 
Anyway, so I had been taking my clothes over to her house because we were packing to leave forever, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so throughout the summer, that's what, what we did, was prepared to go. But the Beatles concert, September 15th, 1964, that was the thing that determined the date of when we were going to actually leave. So the radio station, WHK, had announced a contest to, if you're post, a postcard contest, uh, send in one postcard. It had to be addressed exactly as it said in the newspaper. And then, and for the first time, an IBM computer was going to number and select the um, the postcards. And if you got a letter in the mail, that meant your postcard had been selected. And that letter entitled you to purchase two tickets for the concert. So I got a letter and she got a letter. So now we knew September 15th we were seeing the Beatles live. And so we determined that we would leave the next morning. Mm-hmm. So that's how our date of leaving was determined. <laughs> right. And because because you know, we'll love we'll let people that the whole the whole ticket story is is an amazing story and we're gonna let reader or let our listeners, you know, find out for themselves by reading the book. But trust me, that's that's an amazing story in and of itself of how you managed to obtain front row <laughs> seats at the time. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But this con- this concert uh, goes down in history as being, you know, almost not happening. And you literally had the front row seat for this situation where, um, you know, the the fans all rushed the stage. Yeah, and the concert it was frightening. Was stopped. Right. So what was mm-hmm. it like? I mean, you're 16 years old and you're sitting there in the front row and everybody rushes. Well, first of all, I was really annoyed that these girls would ruin the concert that we had, you know, waited for for so long. Mm-hmm. And they just, they went wild. And it was actually pretty frightening to see them, to see a crowd of girls and kids just go absolutely bonkers, you know, and they just didn't even care what, you know, the uh, the upset they were causing. You know, and I didn't blame anybody for shutting the show down for a little while to try and get control so that we could actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, now, I do you think that's your Catholic uh, school upbringing? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yes. let's all be under control, sit in our seats. And well, and there's no, there's no running or talking in the aisles. You know, you have to behave yourself. Right. <laughs> Stay in line. Stay quiet. <laughs> right. And that's what I did. I just sat there and just watched in horror, you know, and hoped that they were going to get it under control, which they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened, you know, so so you go to the concert and, you know, your flights are the next morning. Right. And um, I, actually, I, I'm blanking on this. Did you Did you spend the night at your friend's house or did you meet her the next morning at her house? No, the next morning I just left the house as if I was going to school as usual. My my house, yeah, and walked over to her house. And and then you waited for her mother and sister. She was also from a broken to leave. No, her her, no no they were already gone. Oh okay. That's their their normal routine of when they would leave for work uh, helped us to determine what time we were actually going to leave ourselves, you know, leave the house and get in a taxi and go to the mm-hmm. airport. 
Yes. As I said, this is this story is so to me this is all happening so casually, also planned out with, you know, and it's it's not like there's, you know, it just it just amazed me how you just smoothly went through this. You're getting the passports, you got the tickets, you planned the date for the day after the Beatles concert. The parents would leave, you know, you would go to look like you're going to school. Instead, you get into a taxi cab. And off exactly. you go to the off Cleveland airport. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. You, you even manage, how long was the layover in at JFK? Oh, it was several hours. It took a while because we got to JFK like late morning and the flight leaving uh, from JFK to, um, to Heathrow, uh, I think boarding was at 7.30 p.m. So we had hours there at JFK. Yeah, and at this point, you're, you know, you two, you are thinking, you know, are they missing us yet? Um, no. You know, and are they looking for us yet? And, you know, at the same time, you 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 imply that, you know, well, they're not going to miss us because we're just going to move away. And you both of you just figured you would move away and you'd be, you know, everybody would be better off without you um, because, you know, you both felt like, I guess, a hardship on your families. Um, so, you, you know, you, you get on this plane and, and once again, look over your shoulder. No one's there to, you know, stop you or looking for you and off you go. Uh, you know, most people planning trips and my husband and I, when we went to London, it became a very big, uh, we know nothing about London. We don't know on a map, what's a good part, what's a bad part, where are we going to stay, you know, uh, we, need to, we need to eat, we need to, you know, we need to be convenient to this and that, and yet you planned none of this. You were just going to land in London and wing it. Well, and we knew we had to get to Soho. That's all right. we really knew. Right. And yeah, we, we winged it. Yeah, and and as I said, it's just it's just that you're so the innocence behind this, as I said, just amazed me reading the book that you just we're just going to get there. That's all. Mm-hmm. Um, it, had, it had to happen. Yeah, and just play it play it by ear in 1964. Uh, so you you land and you know um, within a couple of days you rented your own apartment. You and your friend. Right. The hotel was too expensive, so I said, "Hey, we can't keep staying here. We got to find an apartment." Right, and so these two sixteen-year-old girls rent an apartment, and are just like tourists, you know, around, around uh, London and and you know Soho. And in the meantime, during all this, you're kind of keeping your eyes open for the Beatles. Maybe they're wearing disguises. Maybe they're you know in a limousine, you know, picking in windows and stuff like that. But you're just having a good time. Yes. Living the Beetleland life. Right. And you're shopping so that you can look in fashion, you know, look fashionable. Yes. And along the way, you even managed to get boyfriends during this. I know. This time. Um, Now, would you, now, you know, the guy's name was Mick. Which is so, that's so English. <laughs> so tell tell the listeners about Mick because he's he's quite an interesting 
I want to say character, but he's not a character. He's a real life. He was a real life person. Well, the first night that we made it to one to one of the clubs in Soho, um, <clears throat> we were standing outside, and these this boy started talking to me, and um, I learned that his name was Mick. And over the the course of the time that we spent together there, he was like he was so cool. He was a musician, and he was from Liverpool. So his yeah. name is Mick, he's a musician, he's from Liverpool, and uh, he smokes unfiltered cigarettes, and he wears Which was all cool black. back then. Oh, it was, the, I never saw anything like that. It was the coolest thing. He was the coolest boy I ever saw, ever. And um, he wore all black, and he wore those, what we called, we didn't call it that at the time, but beetle boots. Um, black leather boots with uh, one-inch heels. He wore all that. And he had a blonde pompadour. And um, he was the nicest guy. He was so, so sweet. Oh, my goodness. You know, we just we just hit it off. And how, how so. old, I don't know, how old was, do you know how old he was? I can't, I can't no, recall it. I don't know, but in Soho there were, um, were coffee bars. Mm-hmm. For uh, young people, you know, that couldn't drink. They didn't serve alcohol there. Mm-hmm. But you could go and listen to live music and you could, like, dance all night. So it attracted, you know, all the kids, like, my age. And he he was there and his friends. So I was thinking, well, maybe they're, maybe he's, like, a year or two older than me. I couldn't really tell, but he did seem a little bit older. He wasn't Right, and you're just, my- you're just, a, yeah, you're just a young, naive girl, and this is just, you know, casual. It was, I mean... You were, you 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 know you you were there, and seeing him for like three weeks, and you, at the time, you know, you go and you, you even question, you know, well, is he my boyfriend? Isn't he my boyfriend? But you you really did hang out a lot. We did. We did. Uh, yeah, and <clears throat> um, sorry, I'm. I'm I'm choked. I I got a frog in my throat. But any anyway, so name. I mean, anybody who knows the Beatles and the history of the Beatles, and even the Rolling Stones, um, which is a whole nother story. The Stones, which hopefully we'll get yes. into, the knows the names of the clubs that. I mean, you were visiting all the hot clubs during these three weeks of your your tour. Yes. So yeah, the Two Eyes, the Marquee Club, the Crawdaddy. Oh, my gosh, the scene. Um, I mean, Mick and his friend, you know, they introduced us to some clubs. But we, one evening, when Mick and his friend were going to be busy doing a a gig somewhere, you know, playing Mm -hmm. music, we just kept going down to clubs and we met these two other boys, Paul and Roy. They were totally not Liverpool boys, but they were very sweet. And it was like everywhere we went, um, you know, they knew our accent, and, and it was just intriguing to them that we were two American girls, and just as intriguing as they were to us. You know, now we're in the middle, you know, of everybody has a British accent of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. So it was just a natural thing, you know, plus when you're young, it's natural, you know, to just and easy to meet people. Right, and so, you never... You never allude, You never let anybody let on at any to any of them that you were actually you had run away and moved to London. 
I mean, these all oh. these uh, people you met, you you let them believe that you were just vacationing. Pretty much, right? <laughs> I mean, they knew our names. They knew we. I didn't ha- wasn't trying to hide anything. You know that I was mm-hmm. from Cleveland. In fact, that first night when when I met Mick, you know, I told him. And he said, oh, well, maybe you know this drummer. I know a drummer who played there one time. It was like a, a joke, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I, I wasn't, we weren't hiding anything. Yeah, you just never, you just never, you know, explained any further. No. Than, you know, you were no, just there. No, never did. No, nope. um, I didn't want to go into that because I wanted to just be there. Right. Right. And... You know, uh, so money starts dwindling. Uh, I mean, this this college fund was, you know, nineteen hundred dollars, and you had you had some money, little pocket money too at the time. But you know, yeah. uh, just between rent and food and and you know, trying to get the latest fashions and stuff like that. I mean, that had to be a struggle and stressful. Well, you know, really it wasn't because we were not extravagant in anything that we did. We were very mindful, you know, of of, mm-hmm. uh, of the money money supply, and we did well. Right. And you believed that you were going to get jobs, too. Uh, explain that story. Well, before we left, <clears throat> I had written a letter to Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, Mm-hmm. Letting him know that me and my friend, we were going to be moving to London, and we were hoping to get a job there with him. So I, t- I said in the letter that I knew how to type and file, you know, to marketable s- skills for a girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew that I had some skills, so I was hoping to hear from him before I left, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I-, I hadn't thought about it too much beyond that point when we were over there in London and Liverpool. I didn't pursue it yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you just figured, you know, all right, I'll just write to Brian Epstein. Sure. And, you know, I'll just get a job working for Brian in the office. And even when you yeah. uh, made the day trip to Liverpool and saw, saw NEMS, so it wasn't open, you know, oh, well, we'll just come here, you know, when it's open and, you know, talk to Brian. That's right. Uh, you know, as I everything, said, it, everything, you know, everything seemed possible then. Yeah, yeah. You do. Un- do you understand now that most sixteen-year-olds don't believe the way you believed at the time? So that's well, what makes yes, your I- story so remarkable. Is that you know you just <laughs> you just casually went along. Think. I mean, I'm not saying. I mean, I think everybody should have this sense of adventure that you had. I mean, not necessarily to just get on a plane and fly to another country at 16, but the fact that just believe, believe mm-hmm. that this is all going to be okay and that this is what's going to happen. And and I just I just love that about your story. Um, I just I just totally believed in in what I was doing, you know, and that it would all work out somehow. Although I had only really planned until we got there, and then after that it was you know, trying to find a hotel from a taxi driver, telling him where we wanted to live. And it just fell into place. One step followed the next and followed the next. There was no planning. And and the way things were going, it didn't seem like I needed to do any more planning. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you do make it a point of saying at the end of your book uh, in the notes that, you know, you made, you made no attempt to 
to uh, try to express the opinion of your friend. And, and you did a really good job of, you know, of, of not giving her opinion. Um, and her name, you know, you just mentioned her, you know, Marty. And did you, I mean, who was, who was leading this? Were you leading this or was this all mutually agreed upon? Because you do allude to the fact that she was a little, seemed a little upset more worried about jobs and money than you? Well, we d- we divided it this way. Um, I'll just put it this way. I was the brains and she was the money. So as long as she had the, was providing the money, it was all up to me to plan everything. We just went along with my plan. Right. So I guess when the money was running out, she, she went to the brains and said, um, hello, <laughs> you know, jobs. Jobs, jobs. Every now and then, she would job situation. Yeah. And there, but you know, near your the end of your time in London, you had a. She started to get quiet. Yeah. And started to stay wasn't going out as much as you. Right. Um, you know, from an and you know, you say you you don't know why she was doing this, and you know, you could almost sense a bit of of homesickness in her I guess at at least that was my interpretation of what was going on and at the same time the anxiety of you know the money starting to dwindle and run out uh trying to think where to go with this I have so many questions Uh in my head um so it was on an evening that she stayed home and you and Mick are walking through a park and all of a sudden, a Bobby, a policeman, just walked up to you and asked you where you're from. We were walking along Oxford Street. Okay. It was still daylight. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were now in the, like, hand-holding stage, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all of a sudden I see uh, Bobby, you know, looking in our direction and as soon as I saw that, I just knew it was over. I just knew at that moment. And then as he started to come towards us and asked me if I happened to be from the United States, of course, I knew then it was totally over, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I said, yes. I said, yes. And he said, well, would you happen to be from Cleveland, Ohio? And I said, yes. Why do you ask? <clears throat> And he said, well, there's two girls that are here on on holiday and they haven't written home to their parents and their parents are getting worried. So I had the nerve to say, well, there must be hundreds of girls here from Cleveland. Why are you asking me? Mm -hmm. He said, well, you happen to resemble, you know, one of the girls. And I said, oh. He said, "Um, I'm still hoping he's going to go away, but I know he's not. You know, that feeling, that mixed emotion feeling. Right. So he said, why don't, we, why don't we just take a walk, you know, to the police station and just make sure. Mm-hmm. He's so polite, so nice. And so Mick is still walking with me, and we're walking, and he turns to me and he says, do you know what's going on? Oh, my gosh. And that's when I had to tell him, I'm the girl they're looking for. And mm-hmm. he said, well, why didn't you just tell me? I could have gotten you a job as a waitress on the south side. And this kind of thing was flashing before my mind as, me as a waitress somewhere in London, uh, I don't think so. And I'm, you know, so, no, no, this is not what I wanted to do. 
So we continued to walk along. We went into the police so, station. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, you never – I was, I was, you know, I was wondering how the whole conversation really went along um, yeah. during this walk, and I was going to ask you about that. I mean, yeah. you said – you told him they're the ones I'm looking for. So he never – do you get the impression he hadn't heard about the – I mean, apparently the – story had been splashed all over England about these two girls, the, the yeah. TV, the newspapers, the radio, that these, there was a hunt on for two girls, American girls, runaways. Um, did you think he had not heard the story or had he heard this story already and just never put it together that you were her? I have no idea. My impression was he didn't know anything about it. So this is the first time he's hearing it too. So he's not reading the newspapers or or you know listening, no, no. watching TV either. He's, he's busy pursuing his music career, and that's what he's focused on. Mhm, mhm. And you get so. to the police station, and uh, they start questioning you, uh, you know, about this, and they pretty much just take you away and. What's the last thing, you know, that happens between you and Nick? Well, as we're standing in the police station in the lobby, uh, the police officer gestures upwards to these two posters, one of me, a picture of me, and one a picture of Marty. And I look up at the picture and I said, huh, well, now I see why you made the mistake because the resemblance is uncanny. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, you've really got a lot of nerve, but I figure it's worth a shot. Right. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the officer just looks at me, you know, with a mild amusement, you know, because they're so nice there. I mean, like, really, really beautiful experience there. Mm-hmm. So then Nick just kind of, he lets go of my hand, and he just fades into the background, and he's gone. So that was the last time I actually saw him. I mean, that's a there. heartbreaking moment in your book to read that. Yeah. That he yeah. literally just lets go of your hand and walks out the door. Well, there was nothing else that he could do, and he probably figured, you know, like, well, there's the proof, you know. Whatever's going on, I don't know, and he just didn't know. I don't blame him well, at all. I guess he doesn't say good. I guess the whole thing is he doesn't say goodbye. He Not that I say, heard. Yeah, there's no call me, there's no standing up for you or standing by your side for this. You're literally led into a police station at 16 years old, and he he just walks away. I was kind of heartbroken, too. I mean, you know, reading this, yeah. I'm like, how does he just walk away? You know, this is this is a girl that he's he's been seeing for weeks and, you know, uh, and everything. A terribly heartbreaking moment, but... Uh, you went through, as you said, they were incredibly kind to you at the police station in England, and you ended up getting transferred over to the embassy. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rushing through this because I want people to be able to read these stories themselves. Uh, we don't want to don't want to give away the whole thing, but you're literally put under cover and snuck out and over to the embassy because at this point the press is going nuts. Right. I didn't know that anybody was looking for us, and I certainly didn't know it was a big thing in the news. But I learned that it was, and I was really taken aback by that. Right. And they bring in your yeah. They bring in your friend Marty. Yeah. Because yeah, you've you've given the address, and she's furious with you. Um, Furious. 
yeah, did I mean, why did you, you know, question you? Why did you give him the, the apartment address? In other words, she, did she believe that she could have lived on in London? This is what I'm trying to figure out. Right. I, mean, I, I couldn't understand the, the thought. I mean, as I said, in my opinion, it seemed like she was a bit homesick and, and you know, uh, maybe a little little questioning, you know, maybe I, we shouldn't have done this. We're running out of money. We don't have jobs. How are we going to continue on like this? And yet she's curious with you. For she, she, Well, she's furious because I'm sure she had mixed emotions because she had a real family back in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So she may have had a lot more regrets than I did, but she didn't tell me about that, uh, that she was having those feelings. So mm-hmm. I didn't know really what was going on. Plus, I had Mick and I had just been walking down Oxford Street when we were approached by the Bobby, mm-hmm. but she was back in the apartment by herself. So I'm sure it must have been really frightening when I thought about it later on that the police are knocking at the door, you know, and telling you you have to come with us, you know, get dressed, and all of that mm-hmm. must have been horrifying. And you pretty, you two pretty much get separated, right? We do. Yes, we do. They, they separate, separate us. Yeah. Um, was it after the embassy? Well, no, because we had to fly home on on the plane, you know, so we sat next to each other on the plane from Heathrow mm-hmm. to JFK. Mm-hmm. But then after that, we were separated. You know, like we were criminal suspects, you know, separate right. them and get the, get the confession out of them. You know, it was like that type of situation. Right, exactly. Um, and when you, when they separated you and you get back to Cleveland and everything, you, you didn't see each other again, did you? I mean, once you, you hit the ground, that was it, right? You and Marty? Well, just briefly there and then in we saw each other in court, but we had no contact. <clears throat> right, but you you go back to school, and the school separated you too, so that you would not see each other. I never saw her again. Yeah, it was. It, it, I mean, this is as I said, it's it just astounding that um, the whole all of it, it was as if all of Cleveland was just like, this is it. We're we're separating these two. This is. We're hushing this whole thing, quieting it down. Nobody and we're ever punishing. Gonna, right. But they, nobody was ever going to talk about this. It was like they were going to cover this all up, make this all go away. Nobody's going to talk to these girls. These girls are going to talk to nobody. And we're banning rock and roll because that was yeah. the whole cause. That's honestly yeah. what they believed. Yes. That was Cleveland back then. Mm-hmm. 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 Can I ask you if you had any regrets? Not a single regret. I'm so happy that I did what I did. Yeah, because I know I know that you know that people. I mean, I I honestly tell people I, I have no regrets with my life. Um, no reason to look back and say you know I I, sh- I shouldn't have done that. I'm you know not, mm. but I mean. Um, I think, was there anything you wish you had done while you were in London that you didn't get to do? I mean, I guess except meet the Beatles. You did not get to meet the Beatles as much as you were looking out for three weeks. Yeah. 
Well, I wish I could have gone back to um, Liverpool. That was going to be the plan to go back, mm-hmm. but that was cut short. Right, and as soon you literally, as soon as you knew you were going back to Cleveland, your first thought was, "I'm coming back." That's right. Yep. You know, you can, you can, you can send me home. In fact, that was an issue in in the um, was it at the embassy that they said that you have a choice, the two choices. Yeah. Two choices. Which were? Well, the two choices were that we could go back on our own steam and then we could come back whenever we wanted to, or mm-hmm. we would be deported. So I immediately piped up and said, I'm going back on my own steam. Because I knew I wanted to come back as soon as I could. Right. But your passport went missing. I have no idea what happened to my passport. I'm sure they had to have it, you know, when we were leaving. Uh, uh, England, and then to get back into the United States, somebody had to show our passports, but I never saw my passport again, or my clothes, or anything that was in the in the apartment. Never saw mm-hmm. any of it again. Wow. And yep. as far as you know, Marty never saw her? I have no idea. Yeah. You You and Marty finally eventually got back in touch with each other. How many years later? Well, about four years later, I was—I had her telephone number, and I called her, thinking we were going to be able to, you know, relive our happy time there. And she basically told me that the life that she had, uh, she was very happy, and she did not want to revisit the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did that she know you wrote wrote this book? That was the last time we had any contact. That was 1968. Mm. So she's she's not aware of the book. I don't know anything about her. I don't know anything about her. I have not known anything about her since then. And And certainly uh, newspaper articles have already been written, like here. uh And it's been on the, my story has been on the Internet and everything. And not, no one has... uh, responded to that oh and you've never heard from and you've never heard from mick again well there was no way to hear from mick again i mean we had our last conversation yeah you never knew his last name nope never thought of asking him his last name those things those little details didn't matter you know (laughs) Right, right, because you had all the time in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and at the time, I think about the time, about the time you you run into that cop in, in on Oxford, you're, you know, you're just starting to think, wow, this is this is, you know, am I really his girlfriend? Are we boyfriend girlfriend? You're just at that stage where you're starting to question the relationship and whether or not this is this is a truly romantic relationship just when it's split apart. Exactly. Yeah. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, I I hope we've left enough enough of the story, you know, still untold so that people will buy this book. As I said, it's an amazing, amazing story, an amazing, amazing book. Um, there's so many more details to this. And we didn't even get into the whole Rolling Stones story and how you ended up kissing Bill Wyman. And it oh all happened. And that all happened prior <laughs> Prior to the, I mean, this was what 
how many months prior to you going leaving? leaving? Just a couple months. Uh, almost three months. Yeah. Yeah. So three months prior to the Beatles concert and just leaving off for London to go live in London, you kissed Bill Wyman, and that well, story. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! He kissed me. <laughs> <laughs> you, did, did, did you kiss back? Well, I didn't really have any choice. It was just he kissed me, and that was it. Oh, it well, I don't know. Well, some people, some people, you know, there's the there's there's whether or not you kissed back. I mean, did you did your lips move, or did you just accept the kiss on the lips? I just accepted the kiss. It was a quick one. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Still, took me by surprise. <laughs> yeah, so I want to leave that story for everybody to read in the book because it's just a. a an amazing side story to this this whole wonderful adventure uh, of yours, and and you know it's so it's so thrilling to have read it, and I want to hear what what comes of this book coming out, and I want to hear that I mean I'm the romantic who wants to hear that you and Mick find each other again, and I hope he's out there, and I I hope he knows who Mick is, and what was his friend's name, John, John. Mm-hmm. John, and we must say that John and John and Marty were seeing each other too. So we'll, we'll you know, we'll we'll say that you know when these the two pairs of boys you talk about, your friend was dating the other. Not, I can't say dating because you weren't to you you weren't dating at the time, but uh, you did pair up with them. Uh, so I hope that someone out there knows who these gentlemen are, and hopefully they'll be in touch with you, and you'll be able to relive some old memories. Um, but well, oh. I hope that somebody in England or Liverpool, even or London, somehow recognizes the story and knows Mick. That'd be wonderful. I mean, that's a right. dream that would be a beautiful dream come true. Yes, yes, I'm sure it would be. And and I, I see. I'll never end this show because I have so many questions. Uh, you did go back to to London and Liverpool. Yeah. Um, did you ask people? Did you ask around? if you could find well, him it was too many decades had gone by by that time mm-hmm. you know i didn't even think it would be possible yeah yeah um did you go alone no my brother went with me okay okay awesome awesome mm-hmm. and was it great to relive the memories it was incredible it was incredible to be back there again. It still felt like home, as it mm-hmm. did in 1964. It just feels like my place in the world to be. And uh, the people over there are so wonderful. And the people in Liverpool, oh, my gosh, they're like your family, all of them, even though you never met anybody before. They're the most down-to-earth, friendly, accepting people. And everybody I met, I loved it. And going back to the places where I had been and found many major changes but i'll just mm-hmm. leave that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well <laughs> I, I wish i wish you i wish you so much success with this book i really do i i i hope this this book becomes you know a bestseller uh i can't under, i would yeah i i can't understand why it wouldn't because uh as i said it's it's an amazing story of a young girl and her chasing her dreams and I think everybody should chase their dreams. Not quite mm-hmm. to the extent you did, but 
Well, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> but I I think they should go into it with the innocence and na- naivety that you did. Um, thank you so much, Janice, uh, uh, for being a guest on my show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate being able to talk to you and answer your questions. And I oh. know that there's a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> there is. The there are so many. Oh. <laughs> I could go on. We could go on like this for a long, long time. Anyway, thank you, Beatles, Beatles fans, for listening in. Uh, pick up a copy of Janice's book, My Ticket to Ride. Uh, it will be released what day, Janice? September 15th. Uh, it's coming up pretty quick, 2021. Yep. It, it's, on, uh, it's on Amazon right now. You could pre-order if you want to. Yes, ab- absolutely. Um Pre-order the book. You're going to want it the day it comes out. In fact, pre-order the Kindle so it's downloaded to your device immediately, and then order the paperback so you can have a nice, pristine copy to keep on your shelf. Anyway, thank you, Beatles fans. Thank you, Janice. And we'll talk to everybody and, and see everybody next week. Bye-bye. Bye.